All right, well, let's pray, and we will go ahead and continue where we left off uh, last time, and we will try to uh, conclude for the purposes of our elder reconfirmations going through the qualifications, and I'm actually going to continue on uh, discussing elders and move into congregationalism, um, because my guess is most people have never heard <clears throat> a defense of congregationalism from the Bible, uh, if you know what it is at all, uh, and that's it's fine, but it's one of the distinctives, I would say, of, of uh, Baptists and Baptistic churches. But for, for the purposes of our elder reconfirmation, this will be the last of the three that are necessary, I think, as far as reviewing the qualifications are concerned, um, and then interacting with either Ben, Scott, or Stephen Gamble, if you have any uh, questions about that. So let's pray, and we'll get into it. Father, we are thankful um, for this morning. We're thankful for these scriptures that you've laid out to uh, show us uh, the kind of men that should shepherd the household of God. We pray that you would give us clarity and wisdom and sober-mindedness as we look at these things. We consider our two brothers uh, as well, celebrate the grace of um, God in their lives, um, and we at the same time hold it up uh, to the Scripture. And uh, Lord, we, we, we pray for humble hearts. We pray that you would let this word master us uh, so that we could really get our hands around biblical eldership. So be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, as we were going through, let me see if I have the two passages over here. Yeah. So we were going through the qualifications for elder in 1 Timothy 3. Um, we had gone, we, we had made it up to, if I recall correctly, quarrelsome. Um, but let me just make one, I'm going to go back and just emphasize one more thing about the, uh, the able to teach qualification. Just remember two, two key points about that. Number one, it doesn't mean able to preach two different words in the Greek, teach and then proclaim to preach. Okay, it doesn't mean that someone has to be a preacher. And then number two, within just like every other ability in the whole world, uh, able to preach does not mean like the best in the, able, excuse me, able to teach does not mean like you're the best teacher in the whole world. It doesn't mean like elite teacher. Able to teach, elite, different. I can play soccer. I went to the Nashville game last night. They're a lot better than I am. Okay, so so some people think that in order to be able to teach, you have to be like some a Bible prodigy who's a, this incredible orator and can make power. And it's just not that's not the case. So he's not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle. We talked about that's not a warning against a man who gets into fistfights. That's a man who's particularly socially abrasive and socially violent which goes into quarrelsome, which is where we ended. Uh, and so this man is, is not supposed to be a pot stirrer. Uh, there are a lot of pastors um, who, I say there's a lot of pastors. Let me, let me walk that back. There are a lot of folks, some of who could be pastors, who seem to not know how to live just in peacetime. There's always another ism or ideology or something to oppose. There's always something to go against. They're always in a war. It gives them some kind of existential momentum. Feel like they're the resistance fighting the dark side in Star Wars, okay? And so they're always quarrelsome. They're always, did you see who said this? Did you see who posted this? Did you listen to this sermon? What about this ism? What about this ideology? On and on. And they're actually defined oftentimes more about what they're against than what they're actually for. They stir the pot socially. They quarrel. They love debate. They love argument. And Paul says, if you want a shepherd of the household of God, that's not how they're supposed to be. That's not how they're supposed to be. They should not be quarrelsome. They should also not be a lover of money. If you'll remember a couple of weeks ago, I said that the pastorate um, is, can be an excellent place to hide laziness and the pursuit of financial gain. Okay? 
the pastorate can be, not saying it, there's nothing in it that in and of itself is, but it can be an easy place to hide laziness and pursuit of financial gain. So he's not a lover of money. So if we're evaluating a potential candidate, uh, d- does this potential elder candidate seem to be always talking about money or, or, or their next promotion? Maybe they're never satisfied. Maybe their settledness, their joy rising and falling with, with their bank account or their market fund or their annuity or whatever, uh, depending on how they're invested. Uh, d- does, does money occupy too much real estate in this man's thought life? That's the idea here. That's the idea. You do not want an elder to be a lover of money, particularly in light of the so how, how many warnings are against the dangers of, of money and the allure of riches in the New Testament. He must, and this is, I would say, the second ability, he must manage his household well. He must manage his household well. So the idea here is that the household is a microcosm, a small example, a small world of how that elder would manage or lead a church. And of course, in the first century, your household would not just be the nuclear family. That is a distinctly newer thing in, in, in uh, Western history from what past, you know, a co- maybe a couple hundred years or so, but it would have involved quite a bit uh, to, to manage a household. And so as one, uh, one theologian who specializes in ecclesiology says that every elder has to be a manager at some level. That does not mean that you have to have the gift of administration. It doesn't mean that someone has to be, you know, some kind of visionary uh, casting all the strategies and doing whiteboard sessions. That's not it. But the idea is, if what, what, this, what this is supposed to be getting at is, you look at this man's household, um, you see that things seem to be in, in order, things, that things aren't falling apart, things aren't in total chaos as a general rule, not to be confused in difficult times or uh, exceptional circumstances. But you could look at that household and say, okay, I think that there's enough there uh, with how a man leads that household that he could probably lead the household of God. I mean, he could apply some of those abilities with sober-minded judgment and, and uh, managing in a, not the business sense that we generally think of now, but in an oversight in a way that keeps things going and keeps them going well. Okay, so again, that manage the household well, keeping his children submissive. And we're going to turn, we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, that a little bit more in a second. It's supposed to be a, is this a little mini window world into what how this man could help lead the church? It says, Paul says that this shouldn't, he should not be a recent convert, especially because of some of the honor passages that we are going to read. Esteem elders highly in the Lord. Honor them because there would be a disaster to put a new person, a newer believer in a role like that. Be a disaster. Um, it would be a, a recipe disaster. He may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. In fact, I think I mentioned this to you. It's hard to know. <laughs> I say he went from being a, yeah, we'll just call him a recent convert. Uh, in seminary, he was like maybe 23 years old. 23 years old, he wanted to be a, an elder. He was asking to like get an exception to go like bypass their elder or whatever because he was a smart kid. He wanted to become an elder in a local church up there at seminary. And people were like, you got to be kidding me, right? But for this young man, he just thought, well, I know the I know the Bible real well, um, and uh, and he he struggled with this idea of wanting uh, to be esteemed, wanting to be highly esteemed. And I knew him, by the way. I'm not saying I knew, I knew him personally, and, and um, we studied philosophy, and uh, and and I think this is a great. I, th- I think those elders did the right thing. He was like, you're you're not only too young, you're too young in the faith. Okay, 
Um, and then finally, speaking of young, let me make a caveat about that. Um, the idea here is that the elder is not a kid. Elder is not a kid. There you get an example of a one a one woman man, literally in the Greek, uh, someone who is faithful to their spouse. They manage their household well, um, and so that doesn't it doesn't give any kind of age qualification. The minimum average age for eldership, which was not an official teased out role in ancient Israel, was around thirty. That was about the minimum you could be. Um, as a general rule, again, there isn't the el qualifications for el Jewish elder laid out in the Old Testament. It was tradition uh, that developed. Um, but just the idea is the elder is not a kid. You don't look at that person and say, oh, man, they're, just, they're so in their wild oats and they're just this and that. And whatever age they, ha they happen to be, um, you can look at them and say, OK, clearly that person is a adult. And then finally, the last qualification that Paul gives Timothy here is that he must have a good reputation among outsiders. Listen to what one commentator says here. It says, Paul is concerned that those who may judge less sympathetically, but perhaps also more realistically and knowledgeably will render a good verdict, that's the Greek there literally, from the perspective of their own consciences. And also from the awareness of the particular man's commitment and consistency in terms of his Christian faith. So the example, if, let's just say I went to your place of work. So what, what do you think about this man? I mean, is he, does he make this company a better place? I mean, does he treat people well? Does he seem to be honest? Does he seem? That's what Paul's getting at. He wants to hear, yes, if, if everyone in your workplace says no, gives you a terrible review, um, then those would be some pretty huge red flags. Okay, I wouldn't want to introduce my pastor to someone who 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 was a cancer in their workplace. Would you? No, of course not. Okay, so Paul says I want a good reputation among outsiders. Then the la the last part is subject to a bunch of debate. There's a so that so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. And there's a lot of discussion about what exactly that means. Like it's one of those things you read over like a thousand times, you're like, what, what exactly? Like, what's the disgrace? What exactly the snare? How does it get laid? How's the devil working here? Um, one, uh, one man says it like this. He says, what is partly involved in this Greek word when he says that the unsympathetic outsiders will put the most unfavorable interpretation on the man's slightest word or deed? Either they're making such an evaluation justly or his inappropriate reaction to an unjust evaluation will lead him to fall and be caught in the snare of the devil. Okay? I mean, I don't know that I can do much better with that one, but the idea is that if he doesn't have a good idea with outsiders, there's something that's going to happen either in their, his interaction with them, his perception of them, the way he responds to them, such, such that he could fall into sin and therefore disgrace and no longer be well thought of among outsiders. Something like that is what's going on as far as I understand it. The precise details um, are a little bit odd, okay? All right, that actually ends Timothy's, uh, that actually ends Paul's list in 1 Timothy chapter 3, qualifications for an elder from top to bottom. Before we switch over to Titus, any, any questions about the qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3? Okay, well, let's look over at uh, Titus 1, 5 through 9. 
And we're not going to deep dive into this one, and that is because the vast majority of it is the same as 1 Timothy chapter 3. So I'm going to read it quickly, and then we're going to comment on it. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, when you look at those two passages right next to each other, there's a ton of similarity, right? You hear a lot of similar language. Uh, Titus lists has a few differences. Most of them are not substantive. He explicitly adds, for example, not arrogant. Okay, is this a humble man or is this a man who always wants to make sure that you know he's the smartest guy in the room? Is he a guy who just always wants to make sure um, that 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 uh, he knows that he is above you or something like that? Or does does he is he forget that he's someone who you feel you get around he can actually pull you up? He can pull you up and you can even feed on his faith. Um, it uses the designations holy, explicitly, and disciplined. Very same conceptual space as the whole amalgam of virtues there in the uh, in the first passage. Um, and he teases out what was implicitly in the Timothy list, not quick-tempered. Not quick-tempered. So is this someone who, when something goes wrong, is this man someone who has that uh, instant reaction, just apoplectic reaction to people's uh, social foibles or their sin or criticism? Is this someone who is quick-tempered? Do you, do you feel like you're walking on eggshells when you're talking to this potential man? Because if you feel like you say one wrong thing, you're going to lose it. Quick-tempered. Say, so, no, no, an elder can't be quick-tempered. You can't, you can't be quick-tempered and be a shepherd of sheep. That's just not a good fit. That's not a good fit at all. The new convert requirement from 1 Timothy 3 is dropped explicitly, but it's plausible to think that it's actually baked into the last sentence. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. You might ask, could that accurately describe a recent convert? So it's not clear that it How do we know that someone has held firm to the trustworthy word is taught if they're so brand new? You know, so it's, it's plausible that even though he doesn't explicitly outline it, it's kind of baked into the way, because um, it doesn't just say able to teach like Timothy's. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction. So it does seem that there has to be some kind of observation that this person has been trustworthy in the word of God and therefore presumably not a brand new, not a brand new convert. Okay. Any questions about that before I go to the one that everyone's wondering about? Okay. So let me briefly talk about the one major difference in Titus's list. Um, and that is Titus suggests in verse six, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, that is a fairly serious difference. That's a pretty meaningful difference. And all of the debate in this passage comes down to how to understand this particular word. Uh, well, a lot of the debate comes down to how to understand this particular 
word. Now, let me just say, everyone agrees that we're talking about believer uh, children who are in the home, and they're not, they're not like in the home. Like, they've gone out into the world, and they've come back to visit or stay because times got hard or something like that. This is someone who is, uh, these are children growing up in the household that that man would be uh, kind of evaluated in terms of raising uh, and, and shepherding and overseeing. So uh, we're not talking about adult children who have moved out into the world or adult children who have moved out in the world and, are, and have come back or something like that. Uh, just because rent's high. That, that's, not the, uh, that's not the picture here, okay? That's not the f- first century picture. The Greek word here for believers, and you notice I put faithful slash believers because this is where all the debate is. It's pista. It's where we get the word epistemology. Epistemology. Uh, you hear that there. Um, and here's the question. Is this word here meaning faithful like in 1 Timothy 6, on how uh, slaves are supposed to act toward believing masters or the faithful steward in Matthew. Okay, same word. Um, or, oh no, I, I'm sorry, I got it, I got it backwards. I'll look at my, my notes wrong, I'm sorry. In 1 Timothy 6, there are instructions on how to act towards believing masters. That is to say, believing masters who are Christian. So at 1 Timothy 6, you get the example of this word clearly meaning someone who is a Christian. Um, Or is it faithful, like someone who is expected to do or not do certain things that they are tasked with doing? Like in 2 Timothy 2.2, what you have heard from me entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So this is not just to whatever extent those men are Christian. And of course, we would assume they are given that context. It's not, that's not particularly what the word is getting at there. They're faithful to accomplish a particular task. They're faithful to either do certain things or not do certain things. In Matthew 25, you have the parable of the talents. Remember, good, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll set you over much. Same word. So that's the discussion here. Is it supposed to be translated believing and that the paraphrase would be, unless an elder's children are Christians, a potential elder, you know, children are Christians, they can't be an elder. So your children being believed, and that is a view, by the way. I'm not going to name names, but there are very serious, very uh, God-loving people who believe that that is simply the case. Your children aren't Christians, sorry. You can't be an elder. There's nothing, you know, it's just... I'm circumstantially, uh, you know, unfortunate for you, but that's the way God has ordered the church. Okay? I want to give you three reasons, try to be compelling, persuasive, to, for thinking that it is best understood as faithful. Three reasons for thinking it's better to understand this word as faithful, the children are faithful, as opposed to believers in the sense of being Christians. First reason. It fits the immediate context best in light of the contrast that the actual text gives. Um, notice that the when it says his children are, and then we're going to say faithful, it says and, and not open to. Okay, wait a second. So now we're going to get a little picture of maybe what this means. And notice all of the uh, all of the emphasis is on external behavior. There's nothing about union with Christ. There's nothing about uh, uh, there's nothing about justification. There's nothing about personal repentance and turning from sin. That's all about external, it's, it's about external behavior, particularly that could come back on that man. So, for example, charges of debauchery or insubordination, like an insubordinate servant who is unfaithful with what he is stewarded with. So, um, 
I think the immediate contrast tips us off that we're talking about children who operate within the household uh, in a way that is not bringing utter shame on the whole household, in a way that they're not open to debauchery and insubordination that would call this man particularly uh, into question. And it may, might, maybe, and perhaps uh, even for a season, that man would need to step down. In fact, I remember in seminary that we, there was an elder in a local church who had to do just that. Things got really, he had a teenage uh, daughter, or things went really, really bad re- and very, very public in the community with what had happened, and he decided that he needed, he wasn't, I don't know that they asked him to, but he decided that he needed to step down for a season. He needed to step down for a season, um, just because he didn't think, he thought it would just be a huge distraction for him being up there in that situation, okay? But the idea is, uh, there's public behavior here, it seems to be what faithfulness is defined by, which is the opposite of the gospel, okay? There are plenty of people who are not open to charges of debauchery or not insubordinate, who aren't believers, It seems like the better understanding here is something like they are faithful within the household, okay? That seems to tip the scale, at least for me, this way. All right, so that's one little tip. All right, here's the next tip. This is a threefold kind of scoot to one side here. None of them in themselves are knock-down, drag-out arguments. That's the first one, though. The contrast seems to be more external. It seems to be a fit better with faithful rather than a reality of a renewed heart, um, which it doesn't say anything about. Secondly, the qualifications, excuse me, seem to tell us something about the man, about the character of an elder. Um, You know, this qualification comes in a list of qualifications for eldership. And if that's the case, we might reasonably expect it to tell us about the character or the ability, in some sense, of this man, as opposed to simply a circumstantial requirement. Okay, as opposed to merely a circumstantial requirement. If we take the believing interpretation, it's hard to help us understand how it helps us evaluate this person necessarily as an elder candidate. For two reasons. Number one, I've known great, great, great parents whose children aren't believers. And so so have you. And I've known really bad parents whose children are believers. And so have you. And so if this is supposed to be understood as something that could help us evaluate whether this man is a, uh, would be good, uh, uh, a good shepherd in the household of God, shouldn't we default, shouldn't we prefer the interpretation that helps us uh, discern something more about him in terms of keeping his children uh, faithful and making sure that they are a good steward, they're not open to debauchery, as opposed to a circumstantial requirement that the elder has no control over because he's not... He's not sovereign God, right? He can't cause their children's hearts, his children's hearts to be renewed. Okay, now again, there are some people who just say, listen, this, this is the heart of sorry. You know, Jesus says some hard things. Paul says some hard things. And this is a hard thing. And if your children aren't believers, sorry, too bad. That would also mean that no one could be an elder until they're what? Children are, you couldn't, what happens if, you know, you're, what happens if you've been serving for an elder for five years and you have a newborn child? What are you supposed to do? It's like, all right, we got to have a congregational meeting to see if this little kid's a believer. Seems off. It seems like the qualification here should tell us something about the man, and, and, and it, um, it seems that therefore faithful is a better interpretation. This man manages his home in such a way not to ensure the salvation of his children, which is impossible, but and certainly he preaches the gospel in his home, 
but he manages his household such that his children are not open to public charges of debauchery, insubordination. They're constantly coming in here and disrespecting him. They're not listening. Um, it seems like there is something there we can say, okay, with all the caveats in the world about behavioral problems and this and that, there is something you can say about a man who is parenting his children and who is uh, overseeing his household well, not to be confused with the fact that he can control his children's hearts. So faithful, again, seems to be make a little bit more sense here. And then finally, we dip back into 1 Timothy 3. It seems to better accord with the keeping children submissive in uh, 1 Timothy 3. So now we're letting Scripture interpret Scripture a little bit, right? The old Reformation principle, we're going to go to the clearer stuff to, to help understand the less clear stuff. It does seem that it accords fairly nicely with that, keeping my children submissive, meaning they're not open to insubordination, which is the opposite of being submission and charges of debauchery, um, not to be mistaken with me somehow uh, manufacturing salvation in their hearts. Um, and in this way, we can look at this man and say, okay, this man is able to manage his own household well, not to be confused with playing sovereign God and regenerating hearts, and therefore... Uh, he, he would likely be a good candidate to manage the household of God. So that's my threefold That's my threefold argument for taking it in context as faithful instead of believers. It fits the, the contrast there, supports faithful. Um, it tells us, it should tell us something about the elder rather than something, something he can't control and just something that's circumstantial. And it better accords with the 1 Timothy 3, keeping children um, submissive. It gives, uh, I think that that tips us off. For those three reasons, um, I'm persuaded that, that that's the uh, proper interpretation of the passage. Any questions about my the case that I've tried to stand up there? Yes, sir, Josh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So good point. So I think that whenever we're looking at the qualifications like this, we have to look at when we're evaluating that elder, right? right. Just like we would evaluate any person probably for anything, right? I mean, let's suppose that um, a person is a brand new believer, but they're a brand new believer at 35, when their kids are a certain age, I mean, they're just getting they're just getting the wheels greased, trying to figure out their own, you know, working out their own salvation with fear and trembling. Maybe the kids run off the rails or whatever. Hey, but this man turns into a really mature believer. Uh, his wife, they're all. I mean, it's, it's a let's just call, in this imaginary scenario, say it's a really good situation. Then when this person comes up, we can look at this and say, okay, now what does this look like? Okay, not what it looked like 15 years ago either. Not what it might potentially look like some in the you know in the future, but I, I think the only thing that we have to go on is the 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 testimony of this man's life in a in a window that could be considered um, meaningful but not expansive over everything the man's ever done. Okay, and and the, and the, I think the governing question is there is can people look to this man as a model and an example in this area? Okay, not to be confused with. Has there ever been a time where definitely no one could look to a man? Like, but, but would you feel comfortable saying, yeah, this is an imperfect man, but you could look to this man as an example of how to love his wife and manage his household, and he's not you know, 
uh, you know, finances aren't totally falling apart because he's made a bunch of gambling decisions. I mean, and on and on and on. Even if his kids have moved out of the house and while they were there, it wasn't a good story. Okay? That makes sense? Okay, yeah. Really good question. Really good question. Any other questions about that? Before I touch on one passage that's usually not included here. We're on time. Okay, we're doing good time. Does everyone feel like they have their, their fingers around uh, some of this? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So for any any of these any of these items, I, I would think that you know, let's let's say you come across a man who is all of these things, except there's a questionable area. But then in investigating that, you find an explanation. Let's say uh, the, the the child uh, is is um, is not uh, faithful, uh, and but then on investigating that, you find that the child's got you know mental issues. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. so there's something that yeah. is contributing. He's teaching them things to look at, not not giving them a checklist to. Yeah, so we're going to we're going to talk about some of the uh, we might get that today. Yeah, we're going to actually talk about three background assumptions to these lists in just one second. And I think some of that is going to get teased out. Okay, but I will say that. Yeah, I mean, so that's that would be an example of. Well, yeah, I'm shepherd. I'm say that example. I'm shepherding my child. Well, but I mean, there's 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 problems here. There's challenges here that, you know, some of these behavioral things aren't, don't, you look in, like you said, you see, like, that's not reflecting poorly on this parent. They're doing the, they're doing a great job. This is a challenging situation. And we need to, uh, we need to come alongside them and encourage them because, man, this is really challenging. And so, uh, yeah, the question, the, 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 the qualifications, I, I take it as, and as, as I've argued, should only be understood insofar as they project on, is this an accurate, does this help us understand the way that this, Man uh, uh, lives his life and manages his household, and then if you can look at things and say, "Oh, well, that that's not doesn't it line up with my preferred picture of, you know, the submissive child." It's like, okay, well, let's 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 investigate and see what's going on there. Is it because that man just doesn't care? Now that might be a huge problem. So you investigate, oh yeah, well, his dad just doesn't care about him. He just he just kind of given up on it. That would be a big red flag, right? So it really just kind of depends. All right, let's look at one more passage here. The reason I include this passage is because it has an able-to-teach qualification. Therefore, is going to be in the realm of elders, even though if someone... I almost certainly talk about an elder-elder-like character here. Okay? Um, Paul says to Timothy, and the Lord's servant... And you're going you're gonna to see this sounds like an elder list, a qualification list. Okay? Not quite, but a truncated version, a shortened version. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, we already heard that, kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, so he's not quick-tempered, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So, um, Notice that it doesn't. This doesn't add a ton to the elder qualifications that we've already seen. Um, and again, uh, I want to be careful with it. It does not specifically designate in this particular passage is supposed to be 
uh, does not say the word elder here. He uses the Lord's servant in the context. I think it's probably best understood as something, an elder, something very much like an elder there in Timothy's situation. I mean, I'm Titus's, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Timothy's situation. Um, but notice that what it does specific, uh, specifically add, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Now, this one right here, brothers and sisters, I have to say, is going out of fashion. And I'll tell you why. It's because of this. People have lost sight of the fact that you can be unyielding in your conviction, not budging a second, but you can be gentle in your interaction. Right? Like, I think some people think that if you're gentle in your interaction and you're asking questions, genuine questions, and you're engaging in genuine conversation, they're like, oh no, is he, is he about to be convinced? Is he about to be persuaded? No, I like the person who just sits there and just waits to talk and deliver the truth. Um, correcting people and, um, and, and, and this kind of, 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 of a person, a kind of man loves the turning over the tables, Jesus, it's like their life verse. Um, and the and the picking up a whip, and it's like, see, I'm doing what Jesus did, standing for truth with Bible and confession in hand. Look at me, you know. Every culture's caving. Look at all this compromise. I'm standing. Someone's got to stand in the gap while everyone else tries to be winsome. Okay, um, and debates about winsomeness and this and that, and uh, Tim Keller and whoever you want to throw in there aside. Can this man correct opponents with gentleness? Or does he always feel like he's in a fight? Do you know there's just something so... I remember... Yeah, I remember an elder in a... Uh, I remember an elder in seminary who... He knew... <laughs> he knew so much about the Bible. Every time I... I've given this illustration many times before. I would go in there and we were like debating theologically. And I always... He always had like one, he always like felt like he had one more card than me in the card game. I was like, he always would uh, lay down a hand that was slightly better than mine. Like, oh, I got to think of that. But then I got to realize that the man had like the whole deck up his sleeve. He just only brought out enough cards to play with me. But you know what that did? It kept me coming back. Now, I'm not trying to use like some bad gambling analogy. Please don't, please don't email me about it, okay? I'm just saying that he, like when we were having these conversations, when I said something and I like, even I remember mispronouncing the Greek word for wine, making some very confident assertion about being able to drink alcohol. And, um, and uh, he just sat there and he just kind of nodded his head. And then he just, he's like pronounced it the right way. You mean oinen. Oikos is like the household. I was like, oh yeah, of course, of course, the, the oinen. And, um, I realized that like he wasn't close to changing his view when I was talking with him. Wasn't even close. The man is a Greek scholar, written commentaries and this and that. But every time I was like, oh man, we're actually like engaging. It's like, oh man, maybe we're maybe I'm one point away from like changing his view. Not even close. That's we but we need more real conversation. And now in this context, particularly, we're talking about correcting opponents with gentleness who are opposing the gospel. Okay, but don't think, don't make them, don't make the mistake and think that somehow someone has a magic switch where they can engage the world one way and then all of a sudden engage criticism and what they think to be falsehood another way in the church as a disposition. Doesn't happen. 
doesn't happen. No, I'm great. I am so winsome when people disagree with me in the church and criticize my views and say I question those judgment calls that you've made and I did this and that. But when it's the world, I have that's when I draw my no. Not the case. Not the case. Can this person correct their opponents with gentleness or do they think that a particular disposition is do they confuse a particular disposition in conversation and interaction with conviction? Okay? You can sit there as calm as you want with a smile on your face with the deepest conviction and just ask genuine questions and have genuine conversation. Um, and you don't need to look in on that person and think, oh, no, I think I think they might convince my someone who was watching me debate with the Jehovah, Jehovah's Witnesses in the park last week might have thought, oh, my goodness, Tyler's one sentence away from being a Jehovah's Witness. I was like, oh, because I mean, I would say things like, oh, you make a good point there. Yeah, you make a good point. Uh, well, have you considered this? Yeah, that's pretty thoughtful. I, I really, yeah, I can tell that you've given this some thought. Well, have you considered what Paul says and this and that? Help me understand how you kind of put this together. I'm gapping out right here. How do you put that together? Well, it was a conversation. It wasn't the smackdown. And it could have been because these people didn't know what they were talking about. Seriously. I've given you, I've talked to one or two of you about it. It was, it's sad. It was sad how much they didn't know the Bible. It was sad. Um, but can he correct opponents with gentleness okay okay let me make one qualification here that i don't and i hope this doesn't feel like i'm robbing anyone but i have a deep suspicion that no one in our church is really asking this particular question and out of all the things i could spend a lot of time defending and Stephen has already talked about this if you want to go back and look uh, let me make explicit that eldership is reserved not just for men but for qualified men okay being a man does not qualify you to be an elder being a qualified man Qualifies you to be an elder. Okay. Um, three quick reasons for that. Um, everyone would have already. First of all. yeah. So there's a larger biblical principle at stake. What everyone would have already understood in the context. needs In, in that historical context. If you were going to alter that. It would need to be fairly clear. Or it would be confusing everybody. And everyone coming out of the Jewish understanding of eldership. Would have just assumed that men were going to be. Um, elders, and that's even with all the caveats about there being no male or female, Jew or Greek, slave or free, because we're all one in the gospel. People understood that as a role in the church, everyone just assumed that, and that's not challenged anywhere in the writings of Paul. Second, the husband of one wife does suggest um, that the person is a man. Now you're like, well, how could you be a husband and not be a man? Are you going woke on us, Tyler? No. What I'm saying is, uh, what we're going to get to, the background assumptions is, you might say, well, what if the person's not married? Well, they're not the husband, you know, whether they're a single person. They're not the husband. Oh, okay, so what you're saying is if they're married, they need to be a one. Okay, so why couldn't someone say, oh, well, obviously if they're a man, they need to be a husband to one wife. But what if they're a woman? They would just need to be faithful to their husband. Okay? Um, but Paul has all the language in the world for partner, by the way. Partner. The gender-neutral version of spouse, right? Well, we would say spouse. He uses it in 1 Corinthians 7. And Paul is this wordsmith at making up words. He jams words together all the time to fit his theological purposes. And uh, if he wanted to, it would have been so simple um, to, instead of do one-woman man, which he just kind of puts together, a one-woman man, he could have said a one-partner marriage, partner to one partner, or purely married, or made up another phrase like he frequently does. Okay, instead, he just chooses not to do that at all, at all. 
Um, and then finally, 1 Timothy 2, and I would say 1 Corinthians 14, and this is what Stephen has talked about that I'm not going to get into. You can go back and look at where he's taught on this. 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 14 explicitly limits, I would say, because of the, how the Greek is constructed there, authoritative teaching, um, that particularly that binds, consci- binds consciences, um, is, is, is left to the primarily the elders of the church, qualified men. And that would include people who are acting in the office of elder or someone who's doing elder mimicry, like uh, someone who's doing something that's like indiscernible from what an elder would do, but without the office, that's still reserved for men. So for example, we would let a non-elder preach, right? To maybe train up people to learn how to, uh, and and you've seen some non-elders preach, but because that's an elder-esque thing, like a, a woman's not going to go up here and preach a sermon. Now, I take it that most people in here aren't like, oh, no, I just want that woman to go to preach a sermon. But it, it bears mentioning, okay? It, it's, it's worth mentioning that we do believe that the role of elder and functionally and the office are reserved for, crucially, qualified uh, male leadership, okay? I understand that was a very, very brief defense of male-only uh, uh, eldership. Any questions about that, though? Okay, like I said, if you have more questions, Stephen has addressed this more previously. Go take a look at that. Um, but I don't want to take us into, into right field at this point, okay? Well, let me just briefly mention how we have here, four minutes. Okay, I think I can do this. Let me mention three background assumptions of these lists. First, this is a char- these lists represent charcoal sketches of necessary qualities, not an exhaustive HD High de- that is to say, high-definition picture. So requirements not explicitly listed shouldn't change the shape of the sketch. It should only fill it in. What could I possibly be talking about? Well, notice, for example, that nowhere in the list does it say an elder is supposed to be a man of prayer. Well, what happens if you went to Stephen and Ben Scott and like, I'm against prayer? I'm, I'm a man. I'm, I'm, a, I'm against prayer. I'm an elder who doesn't pray. Why isn't that in the list? Why isn't it there? What about available to serve and roll? I'm kind of an elder in absentia. I'm always, I'm never here. I work in Bangladesh. All right. I'm kind of like elder emeritus, not actually participatory. Um, Well, it seems that if an elder is not able to serve in the role, they don't have the time to do it, then they're obviously not a good candidate to be an elder. Okay. But notice, none of those things, so if you have a charcoal sketch, which is a low definition, by, at least as I understand charcoal sketches to be kind of low definition, these things aren't drawing other things on the sketch to change the shape of what it looks like. It just fills it in differently, if that makes sense. That's, that's the analogy I'm trying to use. So yeah, to Ben, to, to ben Ward's point, um, they are, the, the, these are charcoal sketches of what this kind of man should look like. Okay, and if I told you uh, everything, if I told you, you know, five qualities about Alex Johnson, looking at him, you could say, well, you left out these couple. Look, it's like, okay, understood. I'm giving you the charcoal outline, and then obviously there will be things you can fill in, but what you fill it in with cannot change the shape. For example, this elder needs to be a particular level of um, anything from physical fitness to political affiliation to et cetera, et cetera. Now, that's starting to shape, change the, sh- the shape of the charcoal sketch. You see that? That's not just filling it in. That's changing the shape. Okay, so uh, unlisted requirements 
uh, or uh, shouldn't change. The, I, yeah. It, so let me uh, let me just say it the way I put it here. Requirements not explicitly listed shouldn't change the shape of the sketch. Okay. Second, some requirements listed, on the other hand, make situational assumptions and describe what an elder's life should look like in those areas, provided they characterize his life. For example, married with a family. So the, we have plenty of great examples of single men who, uh, in the New Testament, who would have been, I mean, if, there's a debate whether Timothy was an elder or apost, apostolic delegate there in Ephesus. It doesn't really matter. Paul's telling him, don't let anyone despise your youth, serve in this particular role. Would it be different evaluating a single man uh, as an elder? Yes, it would. He would not have that household microcosm and to evaluate in the exact same way. But where are we seeing him shepherd? Where are we seeing his life in order? Um, how can we look in and evaluate those things? Hey, maybe I'm married, but my whole household is just me and my wife. We, we haven't been able to have children. We've really tried. It's just not in the picture. Okay, again, what I would say is that doesn't change the shape of the sketch here still. The idea is if these things characterize a man's life, this is what they should look like in that man's life. If they're not there at all, well, then you might want, no, no. Suppose you pressed in and said, why don't you have children? I said, we just hate kids. All right, well, I don't want you to be my pastor. Jesus loved little kids. Okay? That doesn't mean little kids aren't annoying. <laughs> but, if you have, but if you have some kind of incredible aversion, uh, and that doesn't, I don't mean all the time, just to be clear. <laughs> but... That doesn't mean that the little kids can't be annoying, but that means if you have a, 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 this huge aversion to children, I don't want to. I don't. I wouldn't want to sit under that pastor. So, so again, if this element characterizes their life, this is what it should look like. And then finally, there is a difference between qualified to be an elder and being a good fit for a particular eldership. I have a friend, Eric Pushman, who's a free will Baptist pastor. Great guy. Would give me the shirt off his back would not be an elder here. Okay? Um, you might have someone who differs theologically in the philosophy of ministry. Now, here's what we do. We're going to go multi-site. We're going to go big time, right? We're going we're gonna to pump a multi-site campus down there, and we're going to link arms with so-and-so to accomplish this and that, and, and uh, that's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to bring to the elder team. It's like, well, you might think that that brother or sister is morally quick, and they're able to teach. They shepherd their, their household well, but that that particular brother uh, has a philosophy of ministry that's just not going to be a fit for a particular eldership, not to be confused with not being qualified to be an elder conceptually. Um, chemistry. You might think, listen, um, just for a variety of reasons, hey, interpersonal chemistry is a way bigger deal on an elder team than anyone will ever tell you about. So I'm telling you about it now. Secret's out. You have a lot. I, I, we talk to a lot of pastors. When, when there is, because pastors have to deal with so much stuff, they're always they're having these conversations all the time that are about very difficult things. They don't always agree on all of it themselves, okay? And they're trying to apply the scripture with wisdom. Uh, uh, and and if you don't have good chemistry with a group of folks that you spend that much time with and have to deal with those kind of issues with, it's really really hard. It's super super hard. And so I can think of examples where someone's their their whether it's their their personality or kind of. How they just how they interact in particular ways in conversation or whatever the case may be um, has nothing to do with the quality of their life, the quality of their character, but might make them in a particular any one particular eldership um, perhaps not a good fit. And they frankly, honestly, in all in many of these cases, that person realizes some of these things as well. Okay, 
So theological philosophy of ministry, chemistry things, is a distinction between qualified to be an elder biblically and being a good fit for any one particular eldership. All right, well, we are two minutes over time. Thank you for letting me finish up that part. Uh, let me pray for us, and uh, we'll go ahead and dismiss. God, thank you for, um, I hope, giving clarity here in what is a helpful description um, of the ministers that you have appointed to shepherd the church. Um, we're thankful to have gone through all of the qualifications, discussed them, uh, and now we look to two to two men, and we say, do, do these men um, stack up? Not perfectly, honestly, but can they be examples um, in these areas? Can they help encourage our faith? So we pray that you would help us be sober-minded in evaluation of these things and of your scripture. We pray that your blessing uh, would permeate the next hour. In Jesus' name, amen.